Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode 47. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 47. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. And today we have some comments and questions from Brandon in Louisville, Kentucky. Brandon writes, Hey guys, I'm a casual listener. I might have gotten through the first 10 or 12 episodes so far. Great job producing so much content consistently. A couple of things. Early on, Greg mentioned a book he was looking forward to reading by someone who was an expert in Near East history. At the time, I tried to Google the name but couldn't find anything. Now I've forgotten it altogether. Well, first of all, Brandon, thanks for your email. Thank you for your compliment on producing so much content consistently. That is one of our goals, and uh, we're hoping to continue on and, and do 52 weeks in a row without missing an episode. So far, we're, we're on it, and we think we're going to do it, so... Thanks for that. And then, uh, Greg, any thoughts on what that book was and who the author is? I am going to Amazon right now. I think the book, I'm just going to check The Lost World of Genesis 1. It's one of his books. And Walton, Walton, pardon me, W-A-L-T-O-N. So John Walton, and he's got... The Lost World of Scripture, Ancient Literature, Literary Cultural Culture and Biblical Authority. That's a new one coming out. The Lost World of Genesis 1, I've got that. Uh, it's 2009, The Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. Yeah, this guy's done a lot. Uh, I think he's at uh, Wheaton. I, I think, I'm not sure. Um, but in any case, yeah, I'm really interested to see Literary Culture and Biblical Authority. Uh, that one's coming out, actually just came out last year. Uh, I don't have that. I'm going to pick that one up, I think. Um, I'm trying to think of other people that I might have been thinking of. Um, uh, the Old Testament Ethics. Um, I'm trying to think of who that one was. I think it was Christopher. Yeah, Christopher J. Wright. Uh, he's another guy. Uh, but there are a few more, and, and if they come to me, yeah, we can throw them in the podcast notes. Sounds good. Okay, so... Brandon continues, so the reason for my correspondence, I've often been frustrated with Christian books that call for total commitment, like we are just supposed to stand there and strain every muscle and tendon in our body thinking about Jesus. I haven't read anything by Kyle Eidelman, nor did I know anything about him other than that you guys have mentioned him in the podcast. I recently moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and haven't had much luck finding a church in the first couple of weeks, so I decided to give Southeast Christian the local mega church, a try. Guess who was preaching? It rhymes with smile, shy, dull men. Anyway, I was really touched by the sermon on humility, and I wanted to know what you all think. Well, that's always a dangerous question. <laughs> Ask what we think. So Brandon left a link to the message, which we'll also put in the notes. I did a little follow-up with Brandon to see if he could be a little more specific about what struck him about the message or which parts he was curious of our thoughts on. The message is about mm, 30, 35 minutes long. And 
I listened to it a couple of times. So anyway, Brandon re- replied back, it was the subtle fact that one can be prideful by comparing their own humility to the humility of others. I also like the point about giving to others secretly. And then in a follow-up follow-up comment, Brandon wrote, also, I'd love to hear you all define love in relationship to God and man. So I don't know that right. we'll get into that today per se, we tend, depending on where you are, Brandon, in the episodes, we tend to talk about that a lot as time goes on. So if if there's a specific, what really helps us, by the way, this is kind of a general comment to everyone, what really helps us is if, as you're listening to an episode, you have a specific thought or question about that episode, drop a comment on the website for that particular mm-hmm. episode. Then mm-hmm. we are able to to kind of be much more specific and kind of dial into the context better to respond to that. So if you, so if that comes about and you could do that, that'd be fantastic. I see a few different directions we can go today, Greg. (laughs) We could probably spend um, quite a while discussing Brandon's comment about the call for total commitment, Mm -hmm. which we've discussed we've discussed before but i'm sure there's more there uh Mm -hmm. and and again that would be around brandon's comment of i've been frustrated with christian books that call for total commitment like we're supposed to just stand there and strain every muscle and tendon in our body thinking about jesus um so i have some thoughts around that and maybe some ways to go a little deeper on that and then there's also brandon's question about what did you think of eidelman's message which as i mentioned i've listened to twice maybe two and a half times and the second time i wrote almost like a transcript of the message i wanted to just get really clear about what i heard him saying and then go from there so what do you think and what you, you know i really like the notes you made uh you you showed me a copy of your notes i i listened to the the sermon by by adelman and by the way the name of that sermon is humble to be exalted by kyle Adelman. It was recorded on May the 25th, 2014. It's number two of a three-sermon series titled The Inside-Out Way of Jesus, and it's available at southeastchristian.org under the Sermons Home. I, I really like, too, the idea that, um, you know, I think, as I've said in a couple of previous podcasts, I really believe that you and I have done a good job with that, um, the book, not a fan. And I think it's a really cool idea to do a follow-up later on with the same person, something more recent. Because like that book came out in 2011. He probably, he must have finished that book 2010. That's really four years ago. So to, to kind of follow along with somebody, see some of their thinking, obviously it's, you know, Brandon has just referred us to one sermon and that's good because you know, we don't have time to, you know, dig into say another book. That's a big commitment. And I don't know that we would do two by the same author almost back to back. I got to tell you, um, I don't think much has changed. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe this, maybe that's a lead in for you. I mean, you wrote a whole bunch of, tell me about that. How did it go for you in listening? What, what was the impact? You know what, before I get there, I, maybe okay. the, the conversation around the call for total commitment is shorter than I think. So here, here okay. were just some, before we started today, I, I just kind of sketched out some thoughts here. So in terms of the call for total commitment, 
Mm. And this is kind of coming out of the conversations we've had and my own experience of, of sorting some of this out for myself, of initially just adopting that the call for total commitment is the message and is the path to God, and then questioning mm. it and then ultimately rejecting it because there's got to be something better than that as far as I'm concerned. The questions that I would, I guess, back to Brandon and anyone else struggling with this notion, see if you agree with my questions, would be to maybe take a step back and say, what is this message based on? Is it Hmm. based on, you know, Christian fear-mongering and drama about going to heaven or not sinning or, you know, where is it coming from? And then, you know... Is it something that you, that you, not the pastor of the day or the book of the day, is it something that you see in the Bible? Like, do you mm. see that as a consistent message in the Bible? And is it something that you feel compelled to do? Mm-hmm. And if neither of those is happening, then I would, well, that's kind of what I did. I kind of questioned it all and threw most of it away. So would right. you add any other questions to that or any other yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really good. I, I think that I, I guess that the the point I'd probably raise is is that um, uh, you know fear mongering about uh, you know not sinning or or about you know heaven versus hell. I, I think for most people, and I think you've been the one to bring this to my attention. So I'll just you know play the 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 opposing position here to to your statements now. Um, uh, that for most people, there is no other option. You know, there's no other way to see Christianity than as, you know, for example, we, we've mentioned very frequently Kyle Eidelman in his Not a Fan book on page 21. And he, the whole book seems to center around this notion of, you know, the most important question is, um, where will I spend eternity? Am I going to heaven or going to hell? And so I guess... For most people, it's almost, you know, the fish in the water situation where they're so surrounded by water. Water is the only thing they've got that they don't even see it. They don't even know it's there. And to think that there could be another option, another way of seeing Christianity is um, something just beyond them. And, and I don't mean that they're not smart or that they're not interested or diligent. I just mean that they've gotten, they've been presented with no resources to really have any other way of forming it other than say another religious perspective, which would be, you know, they're, they're Christian. They're not Buddhist. They're not, you know, Islamic. They're not atheist. Um, so I guess I, I think, I think you're dead on there, but I'm just kind of raising that point to our listeners who might be saying, what on earth do you mean? W- w- what do you mean? Fear mongering. You mean like talking too much about people going to hell? And I think, <laughs> so what, what do you by, mean by, by that? Fear mongering. I mean, and I sense some of this in item in the in the sermon I listened to. If, if fear mongering might be a little, maybe I'm being a little too drama there. But it's it's just fear mongering in the sense of of sowing doubt, sowing doubt, and sowing the ideas of fear. You know, are you really doing the mm-hmm. right thing? Hmm, maybe I'm not. Oh, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? Oh, there's some fear mm-hmm. there. You know, am I going to end up in the right place? Uh, fear of, you know, am I doing the right thing or not? And so I, I guess I refer to it as fear mongering because I experience a lot of church sermons to 
kind of subtly dwell in this place of, are you doing it right? And have you missed the boat? And are you looking at it the wrong way? And you really need to get right with God so that you can see it the right way. And it, it kind of all comes down to, are you really sure that you're doing it the right way? Yeah, that does. See, yeah, I see what you mean. That that seems very. Um, you're spending more time evaluating whether you're on the right track than than how to do the do the things you're supposed to do on that track. Because if you're well, and that's I guess where the fear comes in. Because the fear, the underlying fear, is that you're on the wrong track, and and yeah. that where will that lead? And and yeah, the fear that it could lead to a really bad place. Right. So no, I, that's what I mean by fear mongering, which could be overstating it. And now I'm I'm getting more of that, and this this kind of huge preoccupation that you're you're on the right track, and it's it's almost like the, it's almost as though the the <laughs> it's almost as though the whole preoccupation is to be preoccupied with whether you're on the right track, as opposed to how do I be on that track, right? So you're constantly having to revisit the initial sort of orientation or decision or, you know, okay, like I want to be a Christian. How do I do it? How do I do it? Well, you know, how do I make sure I'm not failing to be a Christian? Well, versus how do I be a Christian well? Mm-hmm. Right? So That's one very is, subtle. One is, That's yeah. very subtle. One is this sort of really basic thing. You're constantly... You're constantly going back to the beginning. You're constantly going back to this initial, okay, I'm, I'm on board, so where's the boat? Versus I'm on the right boat or I'm on a boat going in generally the right direction or a right direction. H- how do I do that part well? Instead of second guessing it, you're like back on the dock again. <laughs> where, where are the freaks the right boat? There are a whole bunch of boats here. They're all going. Some of them look pretty good. Some of them don't. But I mean – how do I know? Did I get on the wrong boat? Maybe I got to tell this guy to turn around and I go, or I'm going to go back and swim and swim over to this other boat to use that analogy. Yeah. No, I like so, that. I like that. Well, and yeah, I, think, I think that would be crazy making. No, it is. It is. And what I think, I think this is a good jumping off point to head back to Eidelman's actual message. Mm. So my initial reaction when I saw, when I saw Brandon's, question oh i don't think we should go there that you know we we did that for i don't know 15 or 16 episodes we <laughs> that horse is dead but then i started listening to the message and i just got pulled in with some of the same mumbo jumbo that stared me with not a fan and so <laughs> so i listened to it twice and it i think what really pulled me in was mm-hmm. a reminder of why i don't see myself going to church anytime soon like, well, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, talk to me about that. I mean, <laughs> well, this was kind of my this was my overall take from the message. Was you get this? This was my overall take from messages like this at churches like this, and that is a mm-hmm. sweeping, broad generalization. But I'll say uh, more of the evangelical type churches with kind of the contemporary service message as opposed to a more traditional uh, liturgical service that you might mm. say at a Presbyterian or an Episcopal or even Catholic church where it's mm. d- much more liturgical. So, And there's a homily and it, it's different, although I suppose a homily could be the same way. Anyway, where I'm trying to get to here is it 
it just feels like a fire hose of stories and verses for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes of things you should do. And then you leave with a conviction that you need to live a better life this week. You know, I knew, wow. Mm. And so it kind of the overall take I had on the message was, I remember sitting in these services and you get all this stuff thrown at you. You Mm. get, you're kind of almost on an emotional roller coaster. There's like a cadence to these messages. And it's a story, and then it's a verse, and then it's a couple more verses, and then it's a couple more stories, contemporary stories, about that kind of prove the point that's trying to be made. And so you're you're kind of consuming this overall presentation. You don't have any time to interact with the material or stop the guy speaking. Mm-hmm. And he or she gives this presentation it's like getting a presentation or a pitch at at work you know the business environment for where where i come from you know you get this 30 minute pitch and at the end you know there's hope that you'll buy and so i just was just kind of my feeling with this message and and so kind of being more specific about the message like i said i tried to be as objective as i could in the sense of just listening and just writing down exactly what i heard him saying so whether i agreed with what he was saying or not I just tried to just be as explicitly like, this is what he's saying. Basically, so I could get it all down on, basically, so I could get it all down on paper and just kind of look at it and reflect on it versus hearing it and just kind of processing the overall takeaway that you hear when you hear something once and leave. What kind of came to me, I just felt kind of like the overall, if I were to sum up the message in, say, two or three sentences, and he, he's, Eidelman said this on a number of different occasions. If you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. The, and the implicit, under, ex, the, the implicit understanding or expectation is, well, everyone wants to be exalted. So we don't spend any time talking about it. What was even more funny to me was there's no discussion of what even exalted means. I guess it's one of those things that we all, you know, just kind of nod our heads and say, oh, yeah, I totally want to be exalted by God, whether that's, you know, more jewels in your crown or I mean, I don't even know, like, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. The, but the message was uh, like all I could sum it up was be humble so that you get the goodies, which, yeah. which as I took a step back, I was like, there's no relationship here. It's all about how can I get the goodies that God will give me if I do the right thing? And, and, and based on the topic of this week, it's being humble. So what are all the different ways that you might be humble or not humble? And if you're not being humble, well, you're not going to be exalted and you want to be exalted. So how can you make sure that you're humble, which is a trap in itself. And I think Brandon pointed that out a little bit. So, I just feel like there was kind of a sleight of hand, I guess, in the message about how the message is focusing on the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke something, maybe, or Matthew. I don't remember. It's in my notes. Okay. And how, you know, it becomes directly applicable to us. And yeah, I I guess it was, what's, what's funny is I had almost a similar reaction to not a fan in the sense that it's like he's trying to solve a problem by referring to the scripture, by referring to the stories, by giving mm. a few personal examples. Right. But I'm kind of left my head scratching my like 
scratching my head saying, well, what is the problem? What problem are you trying to solve here? And again, maybe this is part of a larger series, but I kept saying that with not a fan. You know, what what mm. problem is he trying to solve here and where is he going? Like, what's the context of of what he's trying to get done here? So, I don't know. I've dumped a bunch of stuff out there and I've got my notes and stuff here. So, I don't... <laughs> no, I, I think that's helpful, John. I mean... Uh... Yeah, I mean, that whole part about, as you said, you want to be humble so you can be exalted because everybody wants to be exalted. And well, what what does that mean, first of all? The other thing is that that, that when you when I think about that, when I heard you saying that, again, the, the, the idea is it, you want to be rewarded. So we're back to this kind of, you know, reward and punishment thing. Interesting. You know, yeah, back, heaven is the big reward. Everybody wants the reward. So do what you need to do. And you don't want to get punished, right? Now, the weird thing is, though, sometimes getting the reward, like being exalted or being in heaven, means you got to do things that seem like punishment. you got to do things that seem, you know, they're, they're off the mark somehow. And, and this is, like, I, I really liked your, 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 your notes here. I thought your notes were very accurate. I was watching them and reading them. Actually, I'm going to make my own. And I thought, I don't need to make any notes here of what Eidelman's saying because John's notes are just so good. So by the I just way, made my comments right in there. Well, thank you. And by the way, yeah. everyone out there, keep us honest here or keep me honest. I'm going to publish. So the notes for this episode will probably be a mile long and we'll mm-hmm. try to put the good stuff at the top or the, the summary like we normally do. If you haven't seen the notes, by the way, and you don't want to go to the website each time, just subscribe for the e- to the email updates. We don't do any high volume email and you just get one email a week with the summary of the notes for that episode. So anyway, the notes for this episode, I'm going to post all of my notes that I took from the message. So Mm -hmm. I I guess what I'm trying to do is I, I'm, I'm trying to, to put as much stuff out there to show that like, this is not about grinding an ax against one guy, but no, I don't want to ever like that's not the point here. The point is for me is this is a pervasive approach to Christianity. This is a pervasive approach to Sunday morning sermons. It's the reason why I don't go to church and have no intentions of going anytime soon because the churches that I know of, this is pretty much what you get. And if someone's like, yeah, you just have an ax to grind. I want to say, well, okay, here's this. Here's all the source material. Help me help me see what I missed or help me come to a different conclusion. Cause I'm laying down all the source material here. And if you want to get down and dirty with us, here's the source material. And we'd love to hear from you in the comments. So back oh. to you. <laughs> hey, well, well put. No, that's I think that's got, a, you've got a lot of integrity. I mean, you know, I think that about you anyways, but that, that really, I think that's a really uh, valuable approach. And I think that, that has a lot of integrity in the, in the approach as well. So, well, I, I, this just in terms of, uh, I, this will link in in my brain as I, as I begin to say it, I can't remember the link right now, but at the beginning of the sermon, you know, Eidelman makes the comment, Jesus tells us, uh, not just to be counter-cultural, but, but almost what, what Jesus counter-intuitive. is almost counterintuitive. Yeah. And he says in ways that just don't feel right. And, and, you know, I, I think we're getting back to this whole sort of, 
reward and punishment. And you know, part of the reward is, is you're going to have to, it's going to come to you in funky ways, right? It's this the irony. It's like, the love. Yeah. It's the love of Christian irony. Well, yeah, the, the whole, you know, you've got to kind of, uh, the way up is yourself. down. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and how that that in one way doesn't make any sense. And I, I think what 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 I'm not what I'm I'm certainly not seeing is that oh yes, this all makes sense, or you know oh, this is all wrong. But I think that the way it's been laid out, because we've got some 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 guiding directives, some principal, if you like, vectors or or um, um, guiding orientations that I think are wrong. Because of that. We're taking things that do make sense and that do work out and that do all go together and don't have to be counterintuitive and countercultural in, in, in some sort of nutty way or I don't really understand this way or, you know, why can't I just why, – why, why do I have to go to a sermon to be reminded about this? Why doesn't this just make, make sense to me and I'm – you know, not maybe go to a sermon to be reminded about, but, you know, I don't really understand this at all. Well, yeah, it, it is pretty clear, I think. Well, Some of it is very clear, and I think if we've got the right guiding orientation, then we're going to go in the right direction. I mean, well, that's maybe what, not, right? People may choose to, to say, I, I don't want anything to do with this Christianity, but that's their choice. It's not some sort of big, confusing <laughs> presentation <laughs> that people are constantly – like I say, it's like that thing we said at the beginning of the podcast where it's like, are you on the right boat or not? You don't have to be questioning that. If you're questioning that, I think you're getting a mispresentation. Like you should really be questioning what's the presentation of Christianity I've got if they can't if if I am so confused about whether I'm on the right boat or not. That's a problem in and of itself. That's telling you there's a problem with the presentation you've got. That's my perspective. Well, and you mentioned you know principles. So this was my other observation: is I think there's some good principles in this message. So hmm. so is it a good idea to be humble? I think so. Like, could that all make the world a better place if everyone was humble? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think, and I think that's what these, I think that's what Sunday morning sermons often are. It's, it's principles. It's principles for good living. It's principles for living a better life. Maybe it's principles for making sure you're on the right boat. I really love that analogy. But the question I was asking myself here is, is this really why Jesus came to the earth? Did Jesus come to the earth to just impart good principles? <laughs> like is and and in the message in in the scripture that Adam's working with was was the whole point that Jesus gave the little talk to the Pharisees or I guess it's a parable is the whole reason that Jesus gave the parable was it to teach a principle or was it to make a point and mm. in the as you would say is it to make a point in the context of whatever was going on there at the time to drive mm-hmm. to a bigger message. I mean, did Jesus really just show up that day and was like, well, today is going to be about humility. I'm going to give a parable about being humble so that everyone gets the principle of humbleness. I don't think so. Yeah. I kind of doubt it. Yeah, but I, again, I th- don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, these principles are good. I think they lead to good things. But I think that when it all comes about, when it all becomes about principles, it all comes. It then then you get stuck on the principles and you lose the relationship and who is God and what's the bigger picture here? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's really well put, John. Really well put. 
you know, because when Eilman's talking about, you know, no, we're not supposed to, Jesus tells us not just to be countercultural, but to be counterintuitive in ways that just don't feel right. And those are essentially his words. That's what you've written here. And, and that, that's what I, I heard him saying in the, in the sermon. My thought was, well, maybe yes and maybe no, right? But if you always go with what feels wrong, what you're doing is accepting a message that our instincts are, or our feelings about some things are, are always misguided. And that, you know, almost by corollary, everything Christian is counter to what appears to us to be human or natural or whatever. Uh-uh. Like, that's, that's nutty. That's absolutely nutty. So can our feelings mislead us? Sure they can. Can our feelings lead us rightly? Sure they can. Now, are there ways to work with that? Is it just an arbitrary 50-50? No, I, I think that there are ways to develop a sense of uh, proper attunement. I think attunement, I would say, to truth through one's feelings. It doesn't mean that uh, my feelings are always going to be right, that I'm going to somehow get myself to the point so that whatever I feel is an accurate reflection of the situation. Now, whatever I feel is an accurate reflection of something. But it could be the fact that somebody said something. It reminds me of something my dad said just before he died. And that really triggers me. And I'm really pissed off with that person because that was a really negative thing my dad said. And it was a really crappy thing he did. Well, it may well be that, that, that my dad did say something like that. And it was really crappy and he shouldn't have said that. And it may well be that that fellow right there just said something and it just triggered me. But does that mean there's something wrong with that fellow? That I should be upset with that person or that I should be allowing my feelings of upsetness to guide how I interact with that person? Absolutely not. But if I'm not self-reflective and self-aware, I'm going to miss the boat. I'm going to allow my feelings, potentially, depending upon what I do with my feelings, I'm going to allow my feelings to direct me to act in a certain way that would not be the right way to act. And of course, there's, there's the opposite, right? I may have, uh, I, was, I, was ad, I was out today and we had just gone to a market. We had bought uh, some uh, bread and some cheese and some other things and we're sitting beside a fellow and this fellow um unshaven he looked like a street person like a street person or maybe just like a fellow who was poor and i just glanced at my 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 wife susan and i just said i i really want to offer this we just we just put down a whole bag full of food here so i said to him would, would you care for some bread now he, he said no right but i mean if I didn't have the feelings within me to say, the, to be empathetic, if I said my feelings are always wrong, so the fact that I've got a feeling that this guy might like some bread, and this wasn't, this wasn't a, I didn't say, would you like some bread and do you know Jesus? <laughs> no, but, right? you were follow, but you were following the principle of sacrificial giving. Well, I'm being sarcastic, but no, you were, but yet you were following the principle that you should give to others. Well, maybe, right? But I had a whole, and it was, certainly wasn't sacrificial. I mean, I had a ton of food there. We just finished doing shopping. If anything, I was offloading, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so you wouldn't get points for the sacrificial point. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. But, you know, but there is something inside of me that prompted me. I was hungry. I put down my food. We were hungry. We we're going to eat some of our food right away. And I'm often very focused on my own appetite and my own need for food. And I thought, I looked at this guy and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. So before I ate, I offered him something. So it wasn't like, you know, you're the second or third or whatever, fifth priority here. Here, you know, do you want something? He didn't, but 
whatever. So again, we need our emotions to help us to push us beyond, for me, in that example, my initial and usually overriding orientation to feed myself. And probably by the time I was done, he would have gotten off and been off and gone someplace. And I, you know, who knows? Maybe he was hungry and needed a bit, a bit of food. And, and uh, you know, he's sitting there beside me and my family pigging out. And uh, nobody who's hungry is going to do that for very long before they walk off because it's not very nice to sit beside somebody who's eating when you're hungry. So, you know, I, if I didn't have that type of emotional response, I wouldn't have made that offer. So our emotions help us. They can hinder us. But, you know, to say that it has to be counterintuitive and in ways that just don't feel right, I would say, well, I guess that depends on your degree of attunement to God. What's your relationship with God like? Right? And also, it depends on what's your relationship with other people like. Because our, the love relationship we have with God is related to and also different from what we have with other people. So, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you've been given good things by, by people, if you've been helped out when you needed a hand, uh, then you don't have to have a, you know, specifically a relationship with God to, to look at the guy sitting beside you and think, oh, I think this guy might be hungry. He doesn't look like he gets, he's got a lot of money, right? But so again, I guess what for me is important is, is like you say, principles. If the principle is be counterintuitive, do what doesn't feel right, I would say, be extremely leery of that principle. That sounds like an extraordinarily bad principle. You know, and I think there was also, you know, I think one of the things I heard in this sermon was God likes to fill things that are empty. And if you come to God and you're full, then God can't fill you. And I just thought, what on earth are you talking about? He took this obscure situation with um, Elijah, I think, or it could have been Elisha, of a widow needing money, and all he had was a flask of oil. And I just thought, man, you see, this is what happens. If the guiding orientation in Christianity is to get to heaven, to receive a reward, and to avoid hell, to avoid punishment, then you're going to do whatever it takes to get there. Where was right? that? Because I don't think I wrote that down. The, it... the Elisha and the Elijah one? Yeah, I think I missed that. Oh, maybe I did. I hear it off a different sermon. Oh my gosh, I may have heard it off a different sermon. He did a couple there. Oh, you listened to more than one. I think I listened to more than one. Okay. Okay, well, I might have to strike that, but... Yeah, I don't think... I don't I, not, I don't remember you, hearing that in this particular message. Well, if you didn't hear it, then it must have been in a different one. I think okay. I got confused between which ones to, to listen to, okay. and I heard that one, which is uh, maybe worth a discussion in itself. But okay, we can... <laughs> We'll, we'll, leave, we'll, leave, we'll leave well we can leave it in but yeah well okay right. so that was not in this particular message okay but yeah i just thought you know um but i think it's okay to bring that in and say okay this seems to be part of his orientation and it was a huge part of the orientation of not a fan yeah yeah very much so well and the, the whole piece about jesus challenges everything we are told culturally and i thought well no I mean, again, this whole part of not a fan when Jesus is, when, when, when the Idleman is pushing us to, you know, ideas like, you know, whoever does not love me more than their mother or father, pardon me, is not worthy, or whoever does not hate their mother or father for my sake. And what's really going on there, as we discussed, goodness knows how many times, is that the, the orientation 
in first century Palestine, you know, in antiquity, that is a, a very strong honor and shame culture. And instead, what Jesus is doing is he's reversing this orientation, this suffocating orientation towards family. And he's saying, you know, no, 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 no. You know, your orientation, you know, it's like the guy who says, I've got to bury my father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. And of course, as we discussed then, that's not somebody saying literally, my dad died yesterday. I'm putting him in the grave tonight. That's somebody who's saying, I am the elder son. In this society, it is the role of the elder son to look after the father, um, distribute the estate or whatever. And that's, that's part of my cultural role. And Jesus is saying, your cultural role is not as important as what I am trying to tell you about the new culture that you should be a part of, which is the kingdom of God. And so he's not saying, you know, uh, uh, don't bury this person who died yesterday. He's saying, and it's a whole thing about, you know, who are my brothers and sisters? Your brothers and sisters have come, they're looking for you. And he stops and he says, who are my brothers and sisters? Who's my mother? But the one who hears the word of God and does it. And again, it's this reorientation. So Jesus isn't reversing everything culturally. The idea of family is crucial. The question is, who are my brothers and sisters? Who is my family? How do I respond to family? Where are my priorities? Number one question that we should be drawing out of all of these cultural reversals. Where are my priorities? Jesus is not throwing priorities to the wind. He's not saying, like, do whatever you want. Nor is he saying, everything you thought before is wrong. Not saying that either. You have a family, but your family, the people to whom you should be dedicated, are the people who are working and moving towards the kingdom of God. And that, that still is a very provocative message for us, right? To think that somebody perhaps outside of my family of origin is, is as or more important because they are a fellow Christian. But back then, that was like rockets going off. You know, that was huge because your entire sense of self came from being uh, in your family. And again, this is another thing to think about, our notion of identity. This is Jesus really kind of really striking deeply into the, the core of the human being by saying, your notion of identity comes from one place. It is from God, who knows you better than you know yourself, who loves you more deeply than you love yourself. By being in right relationship with God, you will have your identity because God not only knows you, but through God's love, God has your best interests at heart. Wait, you're saying that's going on in this particular passage or that's something you're wanting to bring in that's missing? Well, when, when Eidelman's talking about Jesus challenging everything we are told culturally, I would say, no, again, that's not true, right? It's not about being thoroughly counter counterintuitive and doing what doesn't feel right. If you use that as a to use your words like a, a principle or a guiding principle, <laughs> buyer beware, not a good idea. But isn't his parable count? I mean, he's talking about the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And as he, as Eidelman describes it, I don't know if this is true. He's saying, you know, in terms of social spectrum, Pharisees were at the top, tax collectors at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion from Jesus' parable is that the tax collector is the one that is right with God uh, might be that's from memory I'm not sure if that's exactly what he said but it was the idea that the, the tax mm -hmm. collector is the one that has it right because mm -hmm. he's asking for God's mercy etc cetera, etc cetera. 
compared to the Pharisee that's thanking God for how good he is and that he's not like those other people. Yeah, well, and I, I would say in a general sense, I would agree. But of course, what I think what's going on there is much more than the, than the tax collector simply saying, you know, have mercy on me, right? It's not the tax collector coming, saying the words, however heartfelt they may be, have mercy on me, and going away and doing things as he did before, right? He does not go away justified, to use biblical terms, uh, before God, just for having said those words, because the words have an impact and an implication on his actions. So there's more going on there, right? This is, this is a story of somebody who has really kind of come to terms with some of his issues, some of his bad choices and choice making, and I think who's going forward to make a change in that. That part isn't in the story, but I'm saying that it's not just about words because the Pharisee, <laughs> what the Pharisee is doing is just about, you know, I do all these things and I'm great or I'm, you know, I'm, I overachieve for you. Right. And for that reason, uh, you know, the Pharisees out there being very sort of boastful. But again, in that context of first century Palestine, the Pharisee has a right to do that. The Pharisee isn't being um, like if that happened in a church today, people would think, you know, this person is out of their mind. You know, how would they dare? So it's not as though. The Pharisee in this example is somehow so lofty in his thinking that that he is he's um, so he's not acting out of character. No, he's not acting out of character. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing culturally wrong with what he's doing because he is he is simply saying, you know, I have merited the honor that is upon me, and the honor I have is due to you, God. And due to my action, our relationship, and I am, you know, I, I'm a beacon. I'm a beacon in Israel, for Israel. I, I think that's what, you know, and I'm not saying that's, that's how I see it, but I think that's how it could be seen at its very best, given a culture of honor and shame in first century Palestine. So we see it as this, 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 this uh, incredibly icky display of pride, but I don't think uh-huh. that's how it would be seen then. Which, right? oh, I, see, and this is what kills me. It makes for a great sermon drama and great, like, convicting principle that we all need to live like, live by, and not be like that Pharisee. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you, we, I think we just have to be, we have to be careful. And and you know, the other thing that I would say is that so honor is your standing in the community. It's how you're viewed. It's your rank. And everybody has a rank and that's how they're ranked. And that's okay. Now, I don't agree with it. I'm a North American in the 20th century. I think that's, you know, bogus. Jesus certainly didn't agree with it. And he also doesn't agree with some of the things that I currently actually think are okay. Right? He's got some things to say about that too. (laughs) But... The whole idea of honor and shame, I think the other thing that we need to be um, aware of is that that shame piece still touches us today. You know, we still feel we experience shame. Uh, we do things that are, that, are, that are very wrong. And I think we need to get a little more in touch. If, we're, if we need to get in touch with the Pharisee, in other words, and we need to understand that what the Pharisee is doing in this text 
it is not this icky display of pride, I think we also may need to get a little bit more in touch with the tax collector, right? And so shame today, I mean, shame is, shame is terrible. Uh, I hate shame. Shame is the worst. Shame is when I make choices that are bad, that I know that are bad, that hurt people that I love, and that, that, that tarnish something that I've worked a long time to attain, like a reputation, which again, maybe in Kyle Adelman's mind or Kyle Adelman's world, reputation isn't worth anything. I don't think so at all. I, I think reputation is, is, is extremely important and we work hard for that and we merit that in a world where people just don't automatically trust. Having earned someone's trust is a great thing. It's the right to be able to speak, the right to be able to offer, the right to be able to come alongside of. And when I tarnish that for myself, there I, I cannot think of a worse feeling in the entire world except when I think one of my kids is in true danger. There is nothing worse for me. You know, and, and for the, for the I, I'll be honest and say I'm not really sure on a large scale then what it would be like to be this tax collector. You know, to even, well, let me put it to you this way. Let me, let me go a little further if I can. When I feel ashamed of myself, I don't like doing things. I don't like accepting good from other people. When I feel that badly about myself, I find it very difficult to accept love from anyone because I feel thoroughly unworthy. I don't feel like it's good to treat myself well. And I think the point about shame, and I'm being careful here, right? Because I still haven't said the way I feel shame is the shame we're talking about in the first century. I'm not saying that. But it's as close as I can get right now. And just so from right now, if we could take the little, you know, we draw a circle around me, Greg, in the 20th century. I'm using myself as an example and talking about shame as it is for me. It's a terrible thing. I don't, when I'm feeling ashamed, I don't want to accept uh, care and love from other people. When I'm feeling ashamed, I don't make good choices for me. So I think shame also has a knock-on effect of when you're in that mindset, when you're thinking badly of yourself, when you won't accept good things from other people, you perpetuate negative things for yourself. Now, I don't know how much of that to extend to, to the Pharisee, I don't, or pardon me, to the, um, to the tax collector and to the notion of shame in, in this context. Um, you know, in this context, it has a lot, it has, it has, it has a wider bearing because, you know, uh, your, your degree of honor is also your credit. People will let you pay for something a week later, let's say, because you're an honorable person. They know you'll pay them back. If you're dishonorable, you can't do that. So it's got a, it's got an ec- a financial, uh, impact. It might have an impact on your actual physical well being, but I'm sure it has an emotional impact too. And, you know, we think of this guy as kind of hanging his head. And I think, you know, this person went away justified. If, we th- if, if shame has the impact in an honor and shame society, like in the first century Palestine, if it has the same impact generally on this tax collector as it has on me, I know that when I feel ashamed, it is tremendously difficult to come before God. It is tremendously difficult to even allow my friends to care for me. I am so wrapped up in what a 
freaking jackass I have just been. And what a complete idiot in how, you know, I've jeopardized things I've worked for for so long. And that's that, you know, and I've got a good reputation generally. You know, my friends treat me fairly well. I, you know, I, um, there's something about that, right? And I guess that's another point. I and mean, that would kind of go on to other points that Eidelman has raised about being humble and just humbling yourself as, you know, you don't know what to do, humble yourself. You got a problem here? Oh, it must be humility. I don't think so, you know? But I think in this particular situation, when we look at the tax collector, you know, um, beating his breast and saying to God, be, I'm reading from the NRSV, this is Luke 18, verses 13 to, and 14. But the tax collector, standing a ways off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. And I think that little principle of being exalted if you are humbled and humbled if you are exalted must be taken within the context of this situation, within the context of an honor and shame society, within the context of a situation where this guy, this Pharisee, was doing his kind of job. He was standing out as this exemplar in his society, right? Here's how it should be. Regardless of the fact that, you know, farmers and peasants and people who don't have the economic means could not do anything like this guy's done. How could you, even if you wanted to, you got to feed your family, right? Are you going to let your family starve and, and sacrifice more than you should to God? Tithe 10% on everything so that your kids don't have enough food? Are you nuts? Right? You can't do that. But likewise, I think we need to look at the tax collector and say, wow, that's quite a step for you probably to even come before God, to even be in the same vicinity as this person who is a beacon to Israel, and here is you. You suck in every single way, and you reinforce it. Because when you feel that way about yourself, you tend to just perpetuate it. You've made a real break here from that, haven't you? You're standing here before God saying, help me. What a change. That's quite a different perspective. (laughs) Well... Well, our conversation kept going long after this, so we turned that into another episode. So tune in next week for a summary of our thoughts on this message by Kyle Eidelman and whatever else happens. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes at untanglingchristianity.com slash 47. If you have questions or comments on this episode, we'd love to see those as well. Post those on the website. Again, untanglingchristianity.com slash 47. If you're looking for ways to help the podcast out, reviews on iTunes and subscribing on iTunes help us as well. Music on this podcast is provided compliments of incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.